we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Clifford Stone couldn't sleep. It was a sweltering July night in 2000, but the heat wasn't the problem. He'd already laid awake and restless for a few nights. It was getting closer. The anniversary, the day it had happened. Five years ago, his son had died in a motorcycle accident. Clifford had visited the grave that morning, but it brought him little peace as he tried to sleep. He tossed and turned, trying to make himself comfortable. Finally, he felt himself starting to drift off. Suddenly, he jolted awake. Before him, he beheld a yellow sphere shifting and oozing like molten lava. It hovered above his head, drawing closer as it cast its shallow glow across the room. Beside him, Clifford's wife continued sleeping, undisturbed by the strange object. He took in the sight, not sure what to do. He had extensive experience with aliens, but he'd never seen anything like this. He wondered if it posed any danger to him. Then a strange alien voice filled his mind, a telepathic communication like the ones he'd had with other aliens. But this one was different. There was a menace to it. And as it spoke directly into his mind, he knew he was in danger. The alien voice said, we could kill you. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. You can find all episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Clifford Stone, a sergeant first class in the U.S. Army who claims to have worked on an elite UFO recovery unit in the 1970s. Last week, we heard Clifford's account of his early encounters with aliens who stalked him through his childhood and about the UFO retrievals he performed at the start of his military career. This week, Clifford's service ends in disgrace and he goes on a new mission to inform the public about the government's massive alien cover-up. We'll examine the documents Clifford unearthed as evidence of a conspiracy and decide just how truthful his claims were. Clifford Stone claimed to have seen aliens all his life. When he was a little kid, they visited him at night. Later, he saw strange objects hovering in the sky above. He even befriended one, Corona, whom he called a lifelong companion, albeit one that nobody but he could see. Inspired by an Air Force pilot who shared his interest in UFOs, Clifford enlisted in the U.S. Army when he turned 18. His deep connection with aliens quickly got him assigned to an elite squad dedicated to intercepting and cleaning up crashed spaceships, often filled with dead or dying extraterrestrials. In 1969 alone, Clifford claims to have had three astonishing encounters with strange entities, including one incident in which he engineered a daring escape for an alien held in captivity. Despite defying the orders of his superior, an intimidating man known only as the Colonel, Clifford was allowed to continue working with the retrieval squad. Clifford's stories of his personal UFO experiences come from his two books, Eyes Only and UFOs Are Real. They can be hard to verify, however, as these were supposedly top-secret missions. For now, we'll be relaying his version of events, however incredible it may sometimes seem. In his memoirs and interviews, Clifford describes the 1970s as something of a haze of alien encounters. Timelines can be hard to follow as he piles one astounding UFO story atop another, rarely stopping to clarify when certain incidents happened and in what order. That might discredit his ideas. Or, perhaps, it demonstrates how routine the whole situation had become to him. Another workaday job where the days blend together, even if those days happen to be filled with aliens. But these missions were often dangerous, and more than once, Clifford Stone found himself in life-or-death situations. And one especially high-stakes operation took him back to familiar territory. The mission began as the helicopter landed gently in the grass. Clifford was back, back in action and back in Vietnam. He'd been on assignment here once before to retrieve a downed UFO from the thickets in 1969. Now, in January of 1970, Clifford's commander, the colonel, had caught wind of a possible Viet Cong tunnel system. He called on the young soldier to check it out, along with his expert team. 
They were the NBC, the Nuclear Biological and Chemical Cleanup Team, a name that concealed their true purpose, concealment and removal of crash-landed alien spaceships. 20-year-old Clifford stalked through the grass, and the squad soon found the cave in question. It wasn't quiet. The mouth was surrounded by other military, including a detail of soldiers that looked, to Clifford, like a search-and-destroy team. Clifford and his men made their way into the cave, which had not yet been breached. The others had been waiting for them. They weren't sure what to expect. This tunnel could be alien in nature, or it could simply be a Viet Cong hideout. As they got deeper into the cave, the tunnel sloped sharply downward until Clifford and his men found themselves directly underneath the soldiers who were waiting outside. And they knew this because all around them, the walls appeared translucent. They could see through them with a clear view to the personnel standing above. As a test, Clifford radioed to the men outside the cave. He asked them to start digging down toward him and his crew to see what would happen. Clifford and the men watched as the men outside began to dig. And from inside this bizarre, transparent cave, it looked as if they were simply shoveling air. The team had to be on alert for an ambush. Whoever else was in the tunnel was sure to see them coming. Venturing further into the cave, Clifford and his colleagues soon lost radio reception. They were on their own now. Finally, they came to an opening, a central chamber with passageways shooting off in every direction. And in a corner of the room was the craft. The ship was black, shiny, and triangular, like an obsidian arrowhead. And then Clifford's men saw. They weren't alone. The ship wasn't abandoned. In fact, it was surrounded by entities. Their skin was a sort of washed out brown color with a bumpy texture. And their fingers each had a suction cup shaped tip. Their features were almost frog-like, elongated oversized limbs and narrow slits for noses. Like always, Clifford began to communicate telepathically with these creatures. They sent messages to him while the other soldiers, who didn't have that intimate link with aliens, waited for his conversation to finish. As he went through the routine questions, who are you, what are you doing here, Clifford continued to inspect the ship. He ran his hands along the outer edge and it lit up with colorful luminescent buttons. Before he knew what had happened, Clifford's view was filled with a bright, brilliant light. He was blinded, knocked back, as all around him, soldiers began firing. He couldn't see, but in his head, Clifford heard the voices of the aliens, who seemed unaffected by the hail of bullets raining down upon them. They told him that they had to treat the wound to his eye. Only their science could heal it. The next thing Clifford knew, he was looking up at his fellow soldiers, back outside the cave again. They had dragged him out. He was clutching his face, which still badly stung. As the medics patched up his eye, they said that some kind of bug must have sprayed him with a chemical. But Clifford was skeptical. He believed that something on the ship had attacked him and that the aliens had helped fix him up, enough that he could continue to recover on his own. 
He asked how long they'd been in there. No more than 10 minutes, right? The others shook their heads. They'd been in the cave for almost an hour. But as odd as this experience was, these kinds of disorienting encounters were routine in Clifford's military career. This one was more painful than most, but almost all of them involved face-to-face interaction with extraterrestrial life and a massive military cover-up of which Clifford was an integral piece. As the years wore on, however, Clifford began to tire of keeping this life a secret, and he was sick of having things kept from him, too. Using his high-level access, he started collecting documents. He submitted Freedom of Information Act requests for key reports discussing UFOs. He read dossiers from government committees like Project Blue Book, The Majestic 12, and more. Clifford claims that, as covertly as he could, he began to pass these documents along to members of the UFO hunting community. He's vague on the details here, possibly to protect the identities of those he contacted, possibly because these disclosures never actually happened. But Clifford says he gave these ufologists breadcrumbs that could lead them to the intelligence officials who could answer their questions. But all this obsessing about UFOs and aliens came at a cost. One day, in 1988, the government made him pay dearly. Next, Clifford battles his own superiors as they try to silence him. Now, back to our story. For two decades, the 1970s and 80s, Clifford Stone claims he was assigned to an elite division of the military called the NBC, the Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Cleanup Team. As part of this squad, Clifford was tasked with going to crash sites of downed UFOs and covering them up. He spoke telepathically with aliens and helped the government hide all evidence of their existence. And at the same time, Clifford was also collecting and stashing that evidence. He was doing so strictly outside of work, using his free time to request declassified documents, then passing what he found onto serious UFO enthusiasts. He also claims to have stolen classified, top-secret proof of alien life, undeniable admissions in print from government officials of the cover-up. Naturally, Clifford has never produced these for the public, saying that he fears for his safety if he did so. But by passing some select material into discreet, safe hands and sharing the declassified documents with the world, Clifford hoped to convince the public of the truth of his strange alien encounters. By the mid-80s, Clifford had a family, a wife, Han, and twin sons, Robert and John. He'd managed to put together an impressive collection of UFO-related project files, courtesy of the Freedom of Information Act, a policy that permitted civilians to access official records so long as they didn't violate certain privacy or national security concerns. And he was starting to become known as a UFO enthusiast himself, something that would soon get him into trouble. The problems began when 35-year-old Clifford was stationed in Roswell, New Mexico. Evaluations of Clifford's military service at this time were, almost without exception, exemplary. 
Progress reports from 1985 describe him in glowing terms, saying, Sergeant First Class Stone is one of the most outstanding NCOs that I've had the opportunity to work with. He received commendations and recognition, such as the Grand Job Award for participation in community programs. But his fascination with UFOs was becoming the subject of some interest. A June 1987 article in the Roswell Daily Record reported that an army sergeant was involved in various UFO groups. That article led to a sharp shift in how his superiors viewed and treated him. Suddenly, he found himself reassigned, moving from an administrative position to a low-level filing job. And his evaluations began to come back negative, littered with sentences like, Sergeant First Class Stone is the least competent administrative NCO whom I've ever observed. Clifford felt he was being forced into early retirement by a military that, at best, was infringing on his free speech rights. After all, he argued, his activities were undertaken in his free time and were simply a hobby he liked to indulge. Clifford had advocates who took out advertisements in military-based newspapers. A group named Citizens Against UFO Secrecy encouraged other servicemen to stand up for Clifford's rights. It was becoming a minor national scandal. With the help of legal counsel, Clifford appealed his reassignment. He wrote an impassioned rebuttal to the charges of incompetence brought against him. And in the end, he seemed victorious. After two years of fighting, his superiors at the New Mexico base were relieved of duty and Clifford was reinstated in his former position. But the incident remained on his record despite his requests. After all the fighting, coupled with this black mark, Clifford simply didn't feel welcome in the military anymore. In 1990, Clifford Stone resigned from his position and returned to civilian life for the first time in 22 years. He was 40 years old and unemployed. But his work to spread the words of extraterrestrial visits continued apace. He continued filing requests for documents, and the government fulfilled them. He unearthed a summary of Project Blue Book and its recorded UFO sightings. He found individual reports of strange encounters from U.S. military officers. For example, a first-hand account of what's now known as the Rendlesham Incident. We covered Rendlesham in a previous episode. Around Christmas 1980, servicemen at a Royal Air Force base in Woodbridge, England, observed strange lights in the neighboring forest. Upon investigation, the soldiers encountered a glowing craft, triangular in shape, not unlike the ship Clifford encountered in Vietnam. Later, Clifford would claim to have taken part in the investigation of the Rendlesham incident and even to have video from the crash site. Again, though, he didn't produce proof. As he explained, sharing the video would get him in much deeper trouble than simply talking about it would. But what he could produce was official documentation in the form of an Air Force memo on the incident. At the very least, the government acknowledged and took the report seriously, even if they were typically tight-lipped about what conclusions they drew from it. With a wealth of new information, Clifford was starting to make big plans. He'd been writing to his senator, New Mexico's Pete Domenici, and to other lawmakers. 
He intended to go public with what he'd seen, and he hoped he could count on their help in obtaining some key documents for his cause. Clifford had carefully traced the history of government UFO investigations, starting with 1948's Project Sign and its successor, Project Blue Book. Through a complex series of codenamed operations, Clifford argued that the government had managed to cover up its clear interest in, and knowledge of, alien life. He managed to prove these connections entirely on the strength of the documents he'd acquired through the Freedom of Information Act, and now that he had the files, he was determined to put them together in a book. He wanted to create a clear timeline with hard proof of the government's involvement in UFO cover-ups for almost 60 years. His obsessive focus on extraterrestrial documentation sapped the Stone family's bank account. To make ends meet, Clifford began working the night shift as a security guard for the local mall. He was 45 now, and it had been a difficult few years. On the evening of August 16, 1995, Clifford was deep in the throes of his research and letter writing when he heard a knock at the door. It was his son, Robert, now 19 years old. With a concerned look on his face, Robert had an offer for his father. He wanted to donate half of his next paycheck to whatever research Clifford was doing here. The family knew vaguely that Clifford had been dealing with UFOs, but they were unaware of his first-hand contact with aliens. They just thought he was an enthusiast, and Robert wanted to support his father's passions. Clifford was touched by his son's offer, but he couldn't accept it. This was his burden to bear alone. He sent Robert away, encouraging him to use the money for some needed repairs to his motorcycle instead. Just two nights later, on August 18th, Clifford arrived at his security booth, ready for a long evening of boredom. The mall wasn't usually a hopping place overnight. But at 8 o'clock, Clifford got a call. Another guard alerted him to a car accident on the far side of the mall. Immediately, Clifford's thoughts went to Robert. Hadn't he been planning to hang out with friends that night? Could it be... He tried to put those thoughts out of his mind and hurried over to the other side of the mall. When he got there, he approached a bystander and asked if anyone had been hurt. Crying, the woman nodded. A motorcyclist had been killed in the accident. Rushing past police officers, ignoring their attempts to stop him, Clifford ran to the body and identified it. Robert. Clifford was shattered. And very quickly, he began to formulate a theory that perhaps his UFO research had provoked retaliation. Was Robert the price he'd paid for getting his story out there? This is, of course, an understandable reaction from a grieving father. And it's important to note that there's no evidence for this theory. By all appearances, Robert died in a tragic accident. But Clifford was obviously distraught and couldn't help feeling like he could have prevented it. For the next few years, Clifford backed off his alien research. Right or wrong, he felt that it had come at too high a cost. He loved his wife and his surviving son too much to risk putting them in harm's way. Every day, Clifford and his wife, Han, made an effort to visit Robert's grave. And in July of 2000, about a month before the fifth anniversary of the accident, 
Clifford had a strange experience. They'd paid their respects earlier. Now, 50-year-old Clifford and his wife were in bed trying to sleep. A noise awoke him, a voice. He saw a yellow sphere descend from the ceiling, and in his head, he heard a terrifying phrase, we could kill you. Clifford's heart began to pound hard, but then another softer voice sounded in his head. This one said, no harm shall come to this man. Before his eyes, the sphere seemed to melt, dripping down to the floor, but no liquid pooled. The drops faded away into nothing. The second voice spoke again, telling Clifford, rest. And as if in a trance, he closed his eyes and fell to sleep. The next morning, Clifford woke, rested, and ready to puzzle over this latest bizarre encounter. His only conclusion was that it was, once again, aliens. And this convinced him that he had to get the truth out because he believed that one otherworldly race had worked to keep him safe from another's attack that night. Clifford resumed his UFO research, collecting documents, touring the country, and even putting together a book on his findings. Called UFOs Are Real, it compiled the many documents he'd unearthed through his research, and it gave context to them through short introductions. However, his work wasn't finished with the book's publication. In 2001, Clifford went to Washington, D.C. with a mission. He knew that the government had been part of a massive alien conspiracy for 60 years, and he was going to prove it. Next, we follow Clifford's ongoing quest to share his findings with the world, and we decide whether those revelations are as explosive as he believes. Now the conclusion to our story. Sergeant First Class Clifford Stone left the military under a cloud of disgrace. Vilified for his belief in UFOs, he had been demoted and scorned. He ultimately chose to resign. His 20-plus year career ended with a whimper. Then, in 2000, around the fifth anniversary of his son's death, Clifford had an eerie late-night encounter. And so, at 50 years old, he finally decided to go public with his experiences in the military. He'd already passed documents to the UFO enthusiasts he knew, but these were items he'd obtained via the Freedom of Information Act. That was a service that anyone could take advantage of as long as they knew what to ask for. Now he was ready to take the next step and tell his own story. Clifford hit the road recounting alien interactions that were beyond belief, rescuing dying space creatures from crashed ships, helping captured extraterrestrials escape government compounds, facing off with hostile species in dramatic firefights in the jungles of Vietnam. In May 2001, Clifford traveled to Washington, D.C., hoping to change the public perception of UFO sightings and alien existence. The so-called Disclosure Project convened for the first time in the main ballroom of D.C.'s National Press Club. It was a lively event. Twenty witnesses, many from the military, sat at the head of the ballroom. 
One by one, they laid out their case for UFOs and aliens in a news conference designed to attract the attention of Congress and force a real investigation into these events. They focused on the strange lights they had seen or unexplained radar anomalies. They presented grainy black and white images of flying saucers. But Clifford was the only presenter who claimed direct contact with extraterrestrial life forms. Clifford painted a vivid portrait of the myriad aliens he had encountered, citing at least 57 species that routinely visited Earth. They had strange, otherworldly abilities. Some of them could sense the colors of objects in a pitch-dark room simply by touching them. Others communicated telepathically. Nearly all could choose to be visible or invisible to whomever they wanted. They all had lives, societies, families, religious beliefs. In essence, he said, they were much closer to humans than the audience likely expected. Clifford talked about holding a dying extraterrestrial being in his arms as the last light of life faded from its eyes. As he relayed the story, he wept. Whether it was the truth or a fanciful fiction, it clearly felt real to Clifford. The conference made headlines in outlets as esteemed as the Washington Post, albeit in a fairly tongue-in-cheek review of the proceedings. Still, the purpose of the gathering was publicity, and in that sense, it succeeded. Over a hundred attendees heard Clifford's testimony. TV cameras captured the event. But alas, the Disclosure Project failed in its ultimate goal to incite congressional hearings about UFO sightings and to force the government to come clean about what they'd been hiding this whole time. Since then, Clifford has continued touring the country, speaking at conferences and events, and giving interviews with outlets like Coast to Coast AM. He published a hybrid memoir-slash-interview book in 2011 called Eyes Only, in which he laid out in explicit personal detail his version of events. This book, too, is filled with documents retrieved through the proper bureaucratic channels and again, it fails to provide readers with any of the classified documents that Clifford supposedly secreted away during his time in the military. He explains this as a matter of self-protection. It's one thing to share publicly viewable documents, even if they're incriminating, but publishing actual classified information would put him in hot water. What Clifford says he's managed to collect is truly astounding including a six-minute recording of a meeting between aliens and the government. Again, though, he can't produce it, because he claims the intelligence community caught wind of it and confiscated the recording. Asked by an interviewer to explain how he was allowed to talk about his experience, Clifford explained that the military didn't care much about people who talked. They didn't pose enough of a threat. It was people who could offer hard evidence who were in danger. Clifford said, say there's a film and you get that film out. They will kill to keep that film from getting out. This is a great reason to keep his supposed proof under wraps, but it's also a convenient excuse if he's making the story up. And that's the biggest problem with Clifford's claims. As hard as some of his stories are to believe, even a little evidence would go a long way toward backing them up but his documents rarely touch directly on his own supposed experiences. 
let alone verify them. The most useful reports he provides are his military records, which hinted toward the work he was doing. Take, for example, a service report from 1983, which describes him as extremely knowledgeable in the area of NBC, nuclear, biological, and chemical defense. This squares with his description of the work he did, going into crash sites and investigating them, ensuring that any nuclear material could be swiftly found and contained if necessary. But researcher and former soldier Kevin D. Randall found that Clifford's army records only show training as a clerk and typist, nothing regarding the more delicate work claimed in Clifford's documents. And Randall has his doubts about some of Clifford's more fantastical stories, too. For example, Clifford describes sneaking out of his foxhole and single-handedly facing down Viet Cong soldiers. On a simple logistical level, Randall says it's extremely unlikely and especially implausible that it would have gone undetected and unnoted on Clifford's record. As a matter of fact, his documents show no combat experience during his time in Vietnam, and he was not awarded any medals for valor that might indicate he fought there. Still, that could simply be part of the cover-up. After all, the U.S. Army would do well to keep its UFO cleanup team inconspicuous on paper, lest people start asking questions about their supposed encounters. The rest of Clifford's claims are similarly impossible to verify. His childhood encounters with alien races almost seemed designed to defy confirmation. The aliens were capable of making themselves invisible to others. They communicated telepathically, and they typically only showed up when young Clifford was alone anyway. In his defense, Clifford Stone's first book, UFOs Are Real, focused entirely on official declassified records. He barely brought his personal experiences into the situation, choosing instead to work with what was written down in black and white. In his books, document after document seems to affirm the government's interest in UFOs. There is the report on the incident at Rendlesham, for example, or a State Department memo reporting UFO sightings over Kuwait. The documents in UFOs Are Real delve into the history of Project Blue Book and the Majestic 12 and other legendary government inquiries into UFOs. All in all, the book presents a fairly compelling case that the government was aware of UFOs and worked quietly to investigate them. This is undeniably true in the sense that, in the early 1950s, a spate of UFO sightings demanded a serious response from the government. What's notably lacking across these records is any provable link to extraterrestrial life. At no point do the files confirm that these UFOs were alien in nature. At best, they concede that they were never able to identify what the object in question was. And reports like the one from Rendlesham can be misleading. While there was documentation of the event, there was no government investigation, at least not on record. This undermines Clifford's claim to have been on the scene. And that, in turn, starts to cast doubt on everything. With his military record already in question, it looks bad if the few provable claims that Clifford has made turn out to be, well, disproven. Looking at Clifford's claims on the plausibility scale, there are two major factors to consider. It's undeniable that the government has made legitimate, serious inquiries into UFO sightings over the decades. 
Whether these suggest a cover-up of real alien contact remains up for debate, but the chain of government-funded committees looking into aliens and UFOs is real. But as for Clifford's alleged personal experiences with aliens in his childhood and while at war overseas, without any evidence to support them, these fantastical claims seem unlikely. Even taken at face value, they don't hold up to logic. We'd have to believe that Clifford was so valuable to the government as an alien contactee that even when he broke one of those extraterrestrials free from captivity against direct orders from his superiors, they let him off the hook. This despite the fact that by his own admission, he was only one of many people worldwide who had the ability to perceive interplanetary visitors. The lack of reported combat experience on his service record similarly casts a shadow on his claims, many of which involve actively firing on alien life forms, going into combat zones in Vietnam, and other situations that would necessitate some kind of note in his record. The lack of evidence doesn't disprove his claims, but their outlandish nature requires more than one man's word if we're going to believe them. For this reason, we give Clifford Stone's stories a 4 out of 10 on the plausibility scale, with 1 being very unlikely and 10 being extremely plausible. His personal experiences are almost completely unbelievable, but the government documents he worked to release are intriguing enough to bump up his credibility. True or not, though, Clifford Stone's claims are rooted in something very relatable. As a lonely child, moving around from house to house, he made friends with invisible beings who swore to look out for him. In the turbulent, violent time of the Vietnam War, he confronted a supposed enemy, aliens, and discovered that they weren't too different from him. Then, decades later, as an adult, he was devastated by the death of his son. But he found comfort in the story of an alien stepping in to defend him and protecting him from harm. It speaks to an impulse throughout Clifford's life, one that seems to propel a lot of alien stories. It's the desire to find company beyond the horizons of our lonely planet and consolation in the idea of beings with greater power than our own, who look out for us and protect us in times of need. And that impulse, even in the form of outrageous tales about crash-landed UFOs and one-on-one -on -one contact with friendly neighborhood aliens is ultimately very, very human. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on Clifford Stone, amongst the many sources we used, we found his books Eyes Only and UFOs Are Real extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Extraterrestrial for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Thomas Dolan Gabbett and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>